But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you, as we do every week, to be here with us in this place this morning, wherever we have gathered in your name. We trust that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Get behind me, Satan. That's the thing that normally jumps out at me when I read the story of Peter's rebuking of Jesus and Jesus's subsequent rebuking of Peter. It's the severity of the ark that Peter goes through here. Immediately before our reading this morning, Peter has correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Who do you say that I am? Jesus has asked him. And Peter knows. He gets the answer right. And then Jesus tells Peter that he is appropriately named. Peter's name means rock. And Jesus says that it is on the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus is going to found his church. What a high that must have been for Peter. It lasts for about one sentence. Jesus began, our reading goes, to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And Peter, probably all puffed up by this newfound rock upon which the church will be founded importance, takes it upon himself to rebuke Jesus. And that's when you get the famous get behind me, Satan, rebuke of Jesus to Peter. And it's so shocking, such a swift turn, that that's normally all I can think about when I read this text. But not this morning, not this week. This morning, it's the second, perhaps less well-known of those two sentences that catches my attention. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. What does Jesus mean here? What is he getting at when he accuses Peter of setting his mind on the wrong things, on human things? Is the problem that Peter is just not focused, that he's thinking about the football game or the royal family or what he's going to have for dinner tonight instead of what he's supposed to be thinking about? The inner workings of the Trinity or the relationship of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility or who exactly the 144,000 are that are referenced in Revelation, even though Revelation hasn't been written yet? I don't think so. I think Jesus is actually saying something very simple here to Peter when he tells him that he needs to be setting his mind on divine things instead of human things. Jesus is telling Peter that he needs to trust God. Here's what I mean. In our reading from Genesis 17 this morning, we read about God's covenant with Abram and Sarai, who become during the course of the text Abraham and Sarah. 
God makes them extravagant promises. He tells Abraham that he will be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. He will be exceedingly fruitful. Kings shall come from him. And he tells Abraham how it's going to work, too. And this is the part that's important for our purposes this morning. God promises that all of this fruit and multiplicity and blessing will come through Sarah. Right? I will bless her says God. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Here's the fascinating part about this reading. This is not the first time that God has made such a covenant with Abraham. You may well recall the covenant that God makes with Abraham back when he was still Abram, back in Genesis 15, just two chapters ago. I say you may well recall it because it seems like I talk about it pretty much every chance I get. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. God makes Abram this extravagant promise that a great nation will come from him, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abram says... How can I possibly believe this? And in response, God ratifies the covenant. He has Abram cut a bunch of animals in half and lay them out on either side of a path. This was, if you can believe it, a traditional way to seal a deal back in those days. What would happen after the animals were cut and laid out is that both parties entering the covenant would walk down the path between the butchered animals. There would be blood and flies, and it would be gross. And the implication of all of this was that each side was saying, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, may I end up like these animals. The ancient version of cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. But in Genesis 15, God's first covenant with Abram, it doesn't go the traditional way. In Genesis 15, after all the animals are laid out, God puts Abram to sleep and passes between the animals all by himself in the form of a smoking fire pot. And so you have a ratified covenant, but a unique one. In this covenant between God and his chosen people, God is agreeing to uphold both sides of the covenant. So, why do it again? Why is it that just two chapters later, God is basically having to renew the covenant promises with Abram and Sarai, even going so far as to give them new names in the process? Well, the reason is simple. In the intervening chapter, Genesis chapter 16, Abram and Sarai have been setting their minds not on divine things but on human things. It doesn't take long after the covenant of Genesis 15 for Sarai to decide, and Abram right along with her, that God probably isn't going to keep his end of the deal. That maybe God isn't going to keep his promise. That maybe they're going to have to take things into their own hands. Now, remember, Abram and Sarai are old, like really old, and Sarai is barren. The world says these two people are not going to have babies. 
This is not going to work. So, setting their minds on human things, like age and how sex and reproduction usually works, and how nation building, in their opinion, ought to go, Abram and Sarai decide that Abram should go have a baby with their maidservant, Hagar. And of course, that leads to all sorts of problems. Hagar begins to look down on Sarai because she gets to carry Abram's child. Sarai gets mad and banishes Hagar to the desert. It's a disaster. Such is the result of setting one's mind on human things. This is the kind of thinking against which Jesus warns Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And it's actually not just Peter, is it? Jesus then turns to the crowd. If any want to become my followers, he says, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For anyone who wants to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus turns from Peter and begins to address all of us. He begins to address you. The world, Jesus is saying, is going to look good to you. Really good. It's going to seem to make more sense than the promises of God. But that way leads to death. Indeed, he asks, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your life? To be thought of in human terms as the best, the most important, the wisest, to be the most popular. What good is any of that if the result is to make the Son of Man ashamed of you? Now, this is a heavy Teaching, indeed, and it should cause every one of us to take serious stock of ourselves. In what ways might we be like Abraham and Sarah, not trusting God to keep his promises, doing things our own way? In what ways might we be like Peter, suggesting to Jesus that really we have a better way to do things? In what ways are we risking our eternal lives. So we ought to examine ourselves. And Lent is, in fact, the perfect time to take this kind of stock. It's the whole intention. I invited you on Ash Wednesday to quote the observance of a holy Lent by self-examination and repentance, by prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and by reading And meditating on God's holy word. Lent is a time for taking stock. Now we also, during that Ash Wednesday service, prayed what is called the confession and litany of penitence. In it, we asked 
the Lord's forgiveness for a whole host of sins that we see in ourselves. Envy of others, bitterness and resentment, sexual impurity, exploitation of other people, our blindness to human need and suffering, seeking the praise of others rather than the approval of God, and on and on. It's a long prayer of penitence. It's heavy. It's supposed to be. We are desperate sinners, you and I. Two petitions in that prayer stand out to me as I reflect on Jesus' admonition to set our minds on divine things and not on human things. We ask in that prayer for God to forgive us for, quote, all of our unfaithfulness and disobedience, for the pride, vanity, and hypocrisy of our lives. And later, we ask for forgiveness for, quote, our intemperate pursuit of worldly goods and comforts. There it is in two short confessions. God, we have not believed your promises and we have tried to do things the world's way. This is what we find when we examine ourselves. But as we said on Ash Wednesday, and as we say each and every week, the acknowledgement of sin and the begging for forgiveness is not the end of the story. On Ash Wednesday, we all got a mark of ash on our foreheads to symbolize our death in trespasses and sins. But then, later in the same service, we came up to the communion table to eat and drink of Christ's body and blood, broken and shed for us, his sacrifice accomplishing a resurrection to new life for even the worst sinners who turn to him in faith. In this way, Ash Wednesday is not only the beginning of Lent, it's also the beginning of our walk toward Easter morning and the empty tomb. For us, in fact, Lent is not actually an especially introspective or penitential time. We are two-word people all the time. We are called, as the scriptures say in both Psalms and Jeremiah, we are called to meditate on God's law day and night. Every day and night, not just in Lent. We are always aware of our sin and always celebrating our Savior. Every single week. Every single day. Lent is just a special occasion for it. But it's the same story. See, Good Friday and Easter Sunday always come at the end of Lent. Every year, without fail. Absolution in Jesus' name always comes after the faithful confession of sin. Every time, without fail. Peter's acknowledgement of Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God does in fact become the rock upon which the church is founded, even after he's likened to Satan by his Lord. And Abram and Sarai, those two people who set their mind on human things and not on divine things and tried to go the way of the world instead of the way of God, well, they become Abraham and Sarah. They get a renewed covenant with God 
a renewed promise of a great nation, and a son, Isaac, in their old age. And then God does, in fact, build his nation. God keeps his promise, even when they don't. God keeps his promise, even when we don't. In the stories of Abraham and Sarah, the story of Peter, and even in our stories, the Lord is faithful when we are faithless. He is a promise keeper when we are promise breakers. So yes, especially in Lent, but each and every day, investigate yourself. In what ways are you, like Abraham and Sarah, conforming to this world, trying to get it to approve of you? In what ways are you, like Peter, telling God that you have a better way, that you know better how things ought to work? We have no doubt, you and I, that we are engaged in this kind of unfaithfulness regularly. That's why we confess every single week at a minimum and have the opportunity through the daily office and morning and evening prayer and just by yourselves alone in your rooms to confess your sins multiple times a day. But always remember, in your investigation and confession, remember the good news. Remember that God is faithful. God is a promise keeper. He made Abraham a promise. Abram sinned. God kept his promise. He made Peter a promise. Peter sinned. God kept his promise. God made you a promise. You are a sinner. God will keep his promise to you. Here's how John puts it in his first epistle, and he just nails both sides of this coin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 8 and 9, and its claim is clear. We are all prone to the errors of Abraham, Sarah, and Peter. We are all allured by human things, and our faith in God wavers. If we investigate ourselves and are honest about it, we will find ourselves to be desperate sinners. But there is good news for desperate sinners. We can repent. We can confess. We can be forgiven and redeemed. And the best part is this, that the work is already done. John went on to say that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the perfect sacrificial offering for our sins. Not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Abraham, Sarah, Peter, me, and you. The perfect offering has been made. 
It is accomplished. Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross will make you new today, right now. So let us set our minds not on human things, but on divine things. Let us together trust God. And to do that, we will confess, we will repent, and God will show himself trustworthy. He will keep his promise. Christ has died and risen again. His redemption has come. You will be forgiven. You will be cleansed. You will be made new. So acknowledge your sin. Look deeply. Be honest. You won't like what you find. But then celebrate with us at the supper of the Lamb. Rejoice in what Jesus has given you. Forgiveness. His own righteousness in place of your sinfulness. Eternal life with Him. An everlasting celebratory supper. All yours in Christ's name. Amen.